You could feel the, uh, the excitement and the anticipation. It was kind of hanging in the, in the air like a heavy fog. People were everywhere, milling the streets, talking excitedly. It was kind of a combination of things, this excitement in the streets. You see, over the years, we had become a very proud, a very resentful and frustrated people. For many years now, we've been told what to do and where to live and, and when to do things and how to do things. And we were tired of it. The names changed, but the situation had not. We were still under the control of a foreign power. And we were ready and starving for a change, any sort of change that would upset the status quo. Another factor to this excitement was, strange as it might seem, as, as Israelites, we were also very hopeful people. There have been times when before when we thought the time had come, when we thought the one had come. Times when rebellions had sprung up with a lot of promise, but then they always ended like they always did, with a bitter defeat and with ghastly executions. And there were the charismatic leaders who would pop up from time to time, men like Thutis, maybe you've heard of him, people who, who we thought were the Messiah, the Chosen One, but they were not. And then another factor that contributed to this was, were the wise ones, the words of the wise ones, wise men and women who studied the Scriptures and followed God's laws fastidiously. And, and they said, surely God will not tarry. Perhaps this time it's different. Maybe this time he's the one. And so, in the city this day, there were thousands of Israelites in Jerusalem. We had gathered from all over the countryside, as we did always at this time of year. But this time it felt very different. And today was the day, and word was spreading like wildfire through the streets, and that he was on the way. And so people from all over the city began to crowd around the streets and crowd around the road into the city, looking to get a glimpse, hoping to see a glimpse of Jesus. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew 21, as we kind of unpack this idea of Jesus on, the, on Palm Sunday. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 12, you can follow along on the screen as well. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on the donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread, through, spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut, cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So in Matthew 21, on this first Palm Sunday, we, we find Jewish people from all over the countryside, all over from Israel, who have gathered in Jerusalem for the time of the Passover, something they would do every single year. 
And the Passover, as you remember, was, was a time when the people would celebrate and remember the time that God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And you remember the tool of how God got them out of slavery? He sent ten plagues. The first nine, Pharaoh did not give in. But the tenth was kind of the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. And, and Pharaoh relented, and God's people were set free. The last plague was the death of all the firstborn sons. And, and God warned the Israelite people ahead of time through Moses that they needed to do something to ensure that their firstborn sons weren't, weren't killed along with all the Egyptians. And so the people of Israel uh, sacrificed the lamb, took the blood, and put it over the doorpost so that when the angel of death came, he would pass over them. And so every year the people of Israel would gather from all over the place to come to Jerusalem and they would celebrate and remember God's power and provision and deliverance. Now today in, 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 in the Christian church, uh, we also remember Passover for, because we see it as it pointing forward to, a foreshadowing of what Christ uh, was going to do for us. Because of our sin, Christ gave his life on the cross. He was a, a lamb, a perfect lamb of God who was sacrificed for our sins. And his blood was shed on the cross. And so what that means for us is that when death comes, when eternal death and life without God comes, it passes over us because we have trusted in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for our sins. So Jerusalem would have been full of people during the week of Passover. Many people feel that it may have maybe been up to 100,000 people in, in the city of time, which would have been a huge gathering in the biblical world. And therefore, there would have been a, a couple groups that would have been on guard. Two groups that would have been on guard because of all these people. Because whenever there's a big crowd around, what can happen? It gives an opportunity for somebody to cause trouble, to start a movement, to do something to upset the balance of things. And the two groups that were on guard would have been, first, the Roman occupiers. They had been stationed there and been given a task, and they certainly didn't want word getting back to Rome that they couldn't control this small nation in the Middle East. And so they were on high alert to make sure there wasn't anything or anybody that would, that would upset the peace. The other group that would have been on guard would have been the Jewish leaders, religious leaders. You see, they were allowed some authority as long as they were able to keep the general populace under control, lest anything upset their agreement, their arrangement with the Romans. So it's into this context that the events of Palm Sunday happen. And Jesus, it says, comes into town riding on a donkey. The people are, are cheering and waving branches from palm trees and, and worshiping him. And then somehow, in some way, it ends up on the cross in the empty tomb at the end of the week. Now, whenever we approach the scripture, we need to ask several general questions. It's always good to ask, okay, what is the scripture telling us about God? Uh, what is scripture asking us to do or to believe? How can we apply this to our 21st century lives? In this case, how exactly can the story of Jesus riding into town on a donkey with big crowds surrounding him, how can that help us grow spiritually, grow deeper in our relationship with Christ and, and go further in our calling and mission for him? And so this morning, to kind of answer those questions, we're going to be looking at different passages of Scripture that surround three different Palm Sunday narratives in the Gospels. 
and we're going to draw out three things that we can apply to ourselves to help prepare us for Monday, Thursday, for Good Friday, for Easter, and for beyond. So the first passage we're going to look at is out of John chapter 12. And this is right before, this is right before John's account of Palm Sunday. John chapter 12. And you can follow along on the screen, or if you have a Bible with you, you can also follow along there. John chapter 1, chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, a small town about six, seven miles from Jerusalem. Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the, the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And then we get this commentary in verse 6. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So the first thing we want to pull out of this is we are to check our motives for, for following Jesus. We are to check our motives for following Jesus. Now, the reason this is so crucial is because if our motives are not right at the core, our relationship with Christ really isn't going to thrive or grow or, or be vibrant. I mean, look at what, what the passage says about Judas Iscariot, a man who had been following Jesus for three years, one of the original 12 disciples, ends up being a man who will eventually betray Jesus in just a few days for some pieces of silver. And we can see because his motive was not in the right place. His motive, at least in part, was to follow Jesus so he could benefit financially. It says he wanted to get his hands on the contributions that people were making to support Jesus and his followers. To Judas Iscariot, Jesus was just someone who had something that he wanted. In this case, money. And he followed Jesus until the day when he saw that Jesus' kingdom wasn't going to lead to earthly power and earthly wealth. We sent another group whose motives weren't in the right place. Uh, the scripture talks about a, a large crowd that would follow Jesus around from place to place, primarily because he was a celebrity. He was well known. He was a he was a miracle worker. You see, word had been spreading about how he could give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and speech to the mute and mobility to the lame and heal the sick, even going so far as to raise a dead man, Lazarus, back to life. And so, as you can imagine, this would attract a crowd. And no doubt they were following Jesus for the same reason today. Many people are so invested into celebrities, the celebrity culture. They, they wanted to be associated with somebody famous or powerful or important. They wanted to be there when he did something spectacular. They're caught up in this person of Jesus but not because they have any understanding of who he really is and, and what he came to do for them. They're bandwagoners. They follow him because he's the hot ticket. 
They're caught up in all the hype, but they're missing out on the true hope that Christ offers to all. Why do we follow Jesus? That can be hard sometimes, motives to discern in ourselves, but we need to ask the question, why do I follow Christ? Is it because it's the right thing to do, or is it because our spouse does, or our parents do, or our family does? Do we follow him because we want to cover all the bases just in case it's true? Or is it because we want something in return for our, our loyalty, our following? That leads us to our second item on our checklist. We are to check our expectations of Jesus Christ. You know, our motives and our expectations are linked, of, of course. One leads to the other and vice versa. Let's take a look at another passage that gets this idea of expectations. This time back to Matthew. Matthew 20, right before the Palm Sunday passage in Matthew 21. And there's this interesting story that gets to the heart of our expectations of, of Jesus. Matthew 20, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus. And Zebedee's, she's talking about James and John. And the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons. And kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it that you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your, at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're talking. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten, talking about the other ten disciples, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When James and John came with their mother to Jesus, their expectation of Jesus would be that it would lead to personal advancement, to personal gain, that they would move up the ladder in this world. They're expecting that when they come to Jesus that, that they'll become close personal advisors of Jesus. They're expecting that he will come into an earthly kingdom and then grant them this opportunity. They come expecting personal advancements and perks, but Jesus offers them something vastly different than what they expected. Jesus says, you are not to live and to act in a way that the world does. He says, I offer you instead a life of service, a life of sacrifice. You are to offer yourselves to others and for others in my name. This was not what they were counting on. This was not what they were expecting. They were looking for an earthly king as opposed to a king whose rule primarily at the time would be in the human heart. Jesus said, instead, take my example. Be humble, sacrifice for others, seek to serve. 
not to serve, not to be served. You know, in a few days, we'll be celebrating Monday, Thursday, and then there's Good Friday, and then, of course, next Easter Sunday morning. And it's very easy for us sometimes to, to, to want to jump past uh, the pain and, 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 the, and the cost of the rest of the week and jump right to the triumph and the, and the goodness, the good news of the resurrection. Because everybody likes a happy ending, right? Without the empty tomb and the risen Christ, our faith is invalid and it offers no hope. But we must be careful to not forget at what great cost our salvation and eternal life have been purchased. We cannot look past his final night when he broke bread and poured wine and was betrayed by one of his closest friends. We cannot forget the, the painful death that he endured for us. What were Christ's expectations? Christ's expectations when he rode into, that, into, into Jerusalem on a donkey was that at the end of the week, there were some bad things happening. He rode into, into town knowing that he was going to be sacrificed, he was going to be crucified and endure a painful, awful death. And he stayed the course and he fulfilled his mission. And if we look to Christ as we should, for example of what living for God looks like, then we should expect that there will be times of of self-sacrifice, be times of struggle and hardship and pain. Jesus told James and John that they would drink from his cup, meaning that you also are going to have to give your lives for others. What expectations do we have of Jesus? Do we expect that when we come to Christ and follow Christ that our lives are going to be good? Our, our marriages will never struggle. Our kids will never stray. Our health will always be good. Our finances will always be in the black. Our businesses will thrive. Jesus doesn't promise us those things. Often we are blessed with those things, but there aren't any guarantees. Our expectations of Jesus are to follow him, to follow his example, to give our lives just as he has given his life for us. That brings us to the third item on the checklist. We are to check our response to Jesus Christ. Again, we turn to another passage surrounding the Palm Sunday narratives, this time from the Gospel according to Mark. And this story comes right after Mark's account of, of Palm Sunday's narrative. Verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say this. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And then these verses aren't on the screen. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a, a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. In verse 20, 
In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, I thought that was kind of an interesting little story in there. Why did Jesus curse a fig tree? You know, a fig tree can't choose a right or wrong. It can't commit a, 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 a wrong. It can't sin. It can't choose right or wrong. Why did Jesus curse the fig tree? It wasn't because he was hungry. He was hungry, but it wasn't because he was hungry. It wasn't, it, it wasn't because he was just having a bad day. He knew it was coming, just wanted to, wanted to break something. It was a, a powerful object lesson about spiritual fruit and about call and about mission and about the things that God asked us to do. You see, way back in Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham was first called to be the father of, of many nations, to be the father of Israel, he's promised that his descendants will uh, grow into, into many, many, many people. More than the grains of the, of, of, of the sea, it says. And that all these people will be a light to the nations. They are meant, they're called and privileged to be a light to all people. They are, in other words, to, to bear fruit, to point people to God, to Jesus Christ. Sadly, the people of Israel, for most part, have been led astray by their leaders. You see, their leaders were doing everything possible to keep them away from Jesus Christ. From, from keeping them from seeing that Christ was the Messiah, that he was the promised one, the one they've been waiting for for so long. They were to be the, the hub and source of God's activity in the world, but they were bearing no fruit for him. And because of that, God's emphasis and blessing began to shift to those who would bear fruit for him. You see, the religious leaders had turned their relationships with God into religious rituals, and they were modeling that and, and teaching that to their people. And what was supposed to be something that brought life and hope and joy and peace and meaning was corrupted and distorted into a system that led to ritual and enslavement and exploitation, like what we see in the verses about the money changers in the temple. God sent his son, he sent his word, he sent his prophets, and instead of responding with joy and obedience, he responded with hostility and apathy, and rejection. And they miss out. To prepare for Easter, we need to check our response to the person of Jesus Christ. Are we responding to him in a religious, ritualistic way with no real thought or, or commitment? Are we rejecting his, his lordship and his claim upon our lives because, frankly, we, we don't want our lives to be messed up too much. We like them the way they are. We don't want it to have to cost us anything. We don't want it to lead to any changes. Have we become spiritually sterile and, and are producing little or no fruit for God and his kingdom? The life-giving response is to respond to Christ with all our heart. Because he's given all for us, we are to give all back to him. It is to relate to him on a, a daily basis, to seek him, to seek his, his companionship, to allow him to work in us to, to produce spiritual fruit for his kingdom. It's Palm Sunday. 
And just like that first Palm Sunday, Jesus is here. Uh, The scripture tells us that he is present here through his Holy Spirit. And the question we have is, is Good Sunday's coming, or Good Friday's coming, and Easter Sunday's coming, and and beyond, are we we ready? How will we respond to him? Let's check our motives. Let's check our expectations. And let's respond with love, with service, with our whole heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he came to earth not to be served, but to serve. He came not to be exalted in this world, but to humble himself and to offer his life as a sacrifice. So, Lord Jesus, as we prepare for Easter ourselves, help us, Lord Jesus, to be to be checking our motives, to be checking our expectations. Why do we come to church? Why do we believe what we believe? Why do we serve? Help us, Lord, to know. Help us to to be founded in a a great love for you. That our our primary expectation of Jesus would be that, that he's going to be there for us. He's going to be with us. He's going to help us and empower us. He's going to save us. So, Lord God, help us to prepare to respond well to Jesus. We thank you for your love and your mercy. We ask this through Christ, O Lord. Amen.